Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is a podcast about film photography, where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And we have cobbled together a fine-ass show for you. Ooh. We'll be talking to Rick Barbosa, wildland firefighter and photographer. We'll also connect a few of our past stories while telling you about Francis Benjamin Johnson's Hampton album. And then there's Alfred Stieglitz, real-life bastard, who did some pretty important things. And we've got the answering machine, a zine review, and well, well, we'll see what else we've got. But first, Vanya. Yes. How the hell are you? That's supposed to be my line. I'm supposed to ask you. How about you go first this time? Because my life is boring right now. Your life is not boring right now. (laughs) I I know your life is not boring. (laughs) Tell us about Eastern Washington. I will not be talking about Eastern Washington today. (gasps) Oh my god! Probably. Okay. We'll see about that. Yeah. So yeah. I do want to talk about what I shot in Eastern Washington. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. You remember how? Okay, we've been shooting a lot of FOMA and just like really loving FOMA Pan, and we should. Yes. Right. I mean, it's it's good film. It's cheap. It's cheap. If you develop it right and shoot it right, it looks wonderful. It looks. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah. It's it's affordable film. You can continue like shooting sheets without going completely broke. That's right. Now, <laughs> HP5 is also not incredibly expensive. It's it's No, it's, actually. It's okay. We don't give Ilford enough credit, and I'm sorry for that because you're right. HP5 is a fairly affordable price and it's it's great trusty film. Everybody loves it. It's it's HP5 is a fucking workhorse. Yes it so, is. So, it's also a film like FP4 that I absolutely cannot get to look good. I don't like it. I like other people's photos with it, but I rarely, rarely like mine. So I decided to kind of just throw caution to the wind and push HP5 to 1600. Now, a lot of people do this. And so that's not a very revolutionary thing. There's nothing revolutionary about this at all. It's fucking film. And so I push it to 1600 and I develop an HC-110, which is also not incredibly crazy. But what I've been doing, because I'm shooting in the sun, so I can't shoot really at 1600, I've been taking an ND filter, like a really thick ND filter, like an ND-64, which is, I think, six stops, and sometimes an ND-1000, which is 10 stops, and that tamps it all down so that it's hard to see through. It's hard to see through the lens. So sometimes I have to take off the the filter and then put it back on before I shoot. But I've been getting some really dark and mysterious and moody and just just dark photos. <laughs> I think they're dark. Really? And I have been loving cool. it. I'm getting grain, but not as much as I've seen when, when other people push HP5, because sometimes it really grains out. And maybe they're using a different developer, though I don't think so. But I'm really liking it. What it allows me to do, what, okay, let's explain ND filters real quick. They are filters that- Neutral density. They are neutral density filters. And what they do is they, 
Uh, think of them as sunglasses, I guess. They make everything darker. Yeah, kind of like a polarizer filter, but really, really dark filter. They can be really dark. Sometimes they can knock a stop off or three stops or... If you have really fast film and maybe not such such a fast camera, you can actually shoot it very slow compared to one thousandth of a second at F-16. Exactly. Like that gets boring after a while. <laughs> you know, that's our 32, you know, F-32 at one thousandth of a second. That you can kind of play around a little bit. You can open up your aperture and make things look a little bit more interesting. And that's what I've been doing. I've been opening up, and this is usually on the RB67, which is the best medium format camera ever made. I sent you a picture of me with my Mamiya RB67 today. I saw that. It's like where we got married. <laughs> Who, you and me? Me and my RB67. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, um, did we? I don't remember that, but I mean, hey, anything's possible. <laughs> So that's what I've been doing. Also, I've been watching a lot of Facts of Life. That's so weird. Is it weird? It is. Why is it, it weird? Is. I don't know. It's just, I mean, okay, I'm not going to lie. I started Golden Girls and I had decided that I was going to go through the entire, you know, all the seasons. Wow. First season of Golden Girls is weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> It's fucking, and, and I'm still there. Oh, really? I'm okay. like, okay, you know, I can't binge mm -hmm. with this show. I can't do it. And I just don't have time. So when I can and I have enough attention to pay, like, <laughs> to the screen, then I, uh, I will turn the TV on. But yeah, I don't know. <sighs> Facts of Life was, sorry, you know, but I was a lot younger than you are. <laughs> You're not that, that show much is younger. On. Let's not be uh, so crazy here. I, and I was hyperactive and crazy. And it was just one of those shows that was like, oh God, this one's so boring. It was not boring. When you are a 10 year old Vanya with ADHD, like undiagnosed ADHD and training as a gymnast four hours a day, six days a week, the time you get to actually like look at the tv you want to see fun stuff okay, fair and enough facts of life was not that <laughs> so yeah i got the dvd box set i just bought it and so i'm really really just having a fun time with it now first season of facts of life is fucking weird though young molly ringwald is in it that's kind of cool yeah there mm. are cameras involved in it like film cameras i mean it's the only cameras they had but 2d is a budding photographer in mm. one episode of the first season and well one weird episode of the second season she's a photographer and i think that's kind of cool one of the episodes mrs garrett even takes a picture with the camera because 2d's teaching her how to use a camera for some reason but she makes a Big, like the biggest print, like an 11 by 17 print. Wow. And you know, talks about being in the dark room. And like, it's it's just neat how that was really part of, this is a sitcom. You know, it, it's, they're not going to talk about things that people don't really understand. People had some working knowledge of how the dark room worked back in, this was huh. 79 when that first season came out. And that's kind of cool. Marley School has a dark room right. and they have a photography program and it's not, di and I told you just recently, it's, it's not digital. Yeah, it's yeah. all film, which is amazing. It is amazing. I don't know how it survived. I don't know. But I'm did, glad it did. Did. They, did it survive or did they bring it back? I, th I think it survived. Really? Honestly. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. This whole time. It, it got me wondering what other sitcoms featured photography. And you know, it's something I'm going to keep an eye out for. I, I do know that Different Strokes did it as well. Now, Facts of Life was a spinoff of Different Strokes. But I know that Willis on Different Strokes was into photography pretty regularly. Like he had a dark room set up in his bedroom. Nice. Yeah. So we may do a uh, an episode. Oh, 
like a movie night, but a yeah. sitcom night. Yeah. I like that because it's way shorter, like for my attention span. Mm-hmm. Perfect. It, Love it, it. It is. It is. So we might, we might end up doing that. He's going to make me watch Facts of Life. I just have this feeling. It'll probably be Different Strokes, which is such a <laughs> weird fucking show. So, okay, nice. that's what's going on in my life. Pushing HP5 and, and watching Facts of Life. How about your life? What is what is going on that's so boring? I'm doing something kind of interesting with HP5 as well at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> I started pre-soaking about... I don't know, like an hour ago. And I just remembered that I was pre-soaking and that I was supposed to develop. So I guess after we record, I will finish developing. Yeah, I if guess. it's still there. It should be. I don't think water can fully dissolve it away. <sighs> yeah. Good, good luck with it, was, though. Let me know how it turns yeah. out. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, besides that, I... A lot of things have been going on in my life. It's kind of a shit show, to be honest. Uh, I'm not going to get into like everything, but I just have a lot of stuff on my plate, and I've had to take a couple steps back from the podcast and give you free reign. So there's going to be a lot of Eric on here. <laughs> well, uh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. I hope you like it's it. It's good and it's awesome because he's like kind of pulling my weight and I I just kind of wanted to publicly say thank you because I I love this podcast. I love what we do and um I just appreciate the support that you have been giving me while I go to school. I really 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 do appreciate it a lot. It's kind of a big deal for me to do this. So thank you. I want to make a joke here, but I can't think of one. So thank you. I know <laughs> he's getting, I'm getting teary. Yeah. It's so. a little, I love this podcast and you know, it, it's been, it's been touch and go, I think a little bit. And that's really kind of worried me because I, 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 you know, this podcast is, you have, you have school, you have Marley, you have like 47 dogs or something like that. And I don't. A business. A business. Yeah, I don't. I have a regular job that I work basically 40 hours a week and I travel on the weekends for fun. But the rest of my life is pretty much this podcast. And and I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I mean, not okay with it. I like that. I love this podcast. I love doing it. And facts of life. Those are the two things that are in my life right now. So <laughs> these are the facts. The, these are the life. facts of my life. The thought of losing it or having to put it on hold or, you know, just having to change something major fucking terrifies me. You know, I mean, eventually this podcast will, will stop, you know, like, like everything does. But I don't think we're ready yet. Oh, God, I'm nowhere near ready for that. I wouldn't know what to yeah. do. I have got a lot of books to go through. Yeah, I'm like, what do you, what, how about you guys? Are you guys ready? <laughs> they may, maybe they're ready. Well, I mean, they have it easy. <laughs> they can just stop listening. <laughs> True. <laughs> please, please don't stop listening. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've been, I've been up to some things. I've been, I hit some roadblocks. I, the first test, uh, I did, I failed. This is the EMT, uh, an EMT test. Yeah. yeah. So it was like the, uh, just like the first EMS like services, mm-hmm. whatever it, the tests are meant for you to fail. <laughs> I think that's kind of what I've decided. Okay. And it's, you take it online with a proctor. So it's like 
this person that watches you so you don't like leave your computer and <laughs> they want to check all your walls to make sure you don't aren't, aren't like cheating and that your phone's put away no no papers no pencils and you can't this is the thing that really bothers me you can't re- read out loud oh wow and that's hard for me yeah. so i still did i just whispered it okay now a, now, a proctor it just sounds creepy yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, it like, wh- did feel, it feel, felt like that. Yeah, like, oh, what, what's your job? Oh, I'm a proctor. And you're just like, oh. Yeah. The fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, it's, oh, it, what a it's weird, it seems rough. Yeah. It's like the word dongle. It's like, there has to be a better word we could have picked for Ooh, this. Yeah, maybe. Dingle? Probably not that. <laughs> yeah, the first test, they, they do this thing called cut score. So you have to get like 75 on that first test. And I got 73. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, I was like super bummed, but I, it just kind of made me realize how much I wanted this. And then also like, Hey, like this is, this is new for me and it's going to be hard, but I can do it. And you also realize that a lot of other people who are teaching you also failed the first exam. Well, that, and also like someone was like, yeah, I I, I studied so hard and I didn't get, I didn't get all of them right. And one of the teachers was like, I don't think anybody's ever gotten 100% on this test. Wow. It's just like almost impossible. Wow. <laughs> it's not exactly about the percentage. It's about how much knowledge you've attained so far to kind of go in and, you know, work. Yeah. Functionally work for uh, pre-hospital care, basically. Yeah. So it's exciting. I just, I've always wanted to do this, even if it's just for volunteer. Like I'm, there's a open house at the fire department Mm -hmm. in, in El Segundo on Saturday. So actually by the time you guys listen to this, I had hopefully got over there and, and talked to somebody about what kind of programs they have for like, you know, people that are certified. I got my like CPR certification. So that's good to go. And I'm just, I know. It's just really exciting. It is really exciting. It seems like it's a little, <laughs> a little you know, there's some ups and downs here. But, yeah. you know, if you, you, you got to take the good and take the bad and then take them both. And there you have the facts of life. I'll be like a good partner to hike with because when you break your hip because you're so fucking old, I can, I can fix you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both and there you have the facts of life. The facts of life. Each episode, we put on our house slippers because who wears shoes in the house? Like what civilized person would do that? And our cozy cardigans because there's only one kind of cardigan and that's cozy. And we check our answering machine, something that all of you absolutely do every day. We are just like you. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. And, Vanya, what is this episode's weird-ass question? Spring is soon here, but is it worth it? That's the question. (laughs) No, it is not. Which do you like shooting better, spring or fall, and why? So, we had a bunch of people, well, actually, I'm sure our listeners, some of them, anyway, would remember that um, I, I forgot to tell everybody to to call in. And so I usually post it on social media and, and 
because of that, nobody called in. So yeah, I had to, this morning, right? You I called no, me it was and this was afternoon. Like, uh, I was like, holy fuck, oh. I have to do this. So I quick did it. And pretty much all, we had a couple of people call in based on the last episode. So they did it with oh, cool. two of them. Did. Someone actually does like their homework on time. That's so it weird. It is really weird. But the vast majority of these people came through for us when we needed it. So thank you, you guys. Yes, all of them are really wonderful. And there's actually a number of first time callers. So I'm going to shut the fuck up and let us begin. Push the button, will you? Greetings. Thank you for calling all through a lens podcast. We are not home right now. We have no home. So leave us a message and we'll make fun of you when we return. Thank you. And may God have mercy on your soul. Hey, it's James at All in Grain on Instagram. Uh, I like spring better because here in Florida, spring is green and colorful. Fall is brown. And while I conceptually like the idea of fall better, the colors and the changing of the leaves, that doesn't really happen here. So I've got to go with spring on this one just because you get a lot more interesting stuff to shoot. I enjoy how spring wins by default in Florida. <laughs> Wait, when's when's hurricane season? It's spring, but okay. also a little bit yeah. of summer. And, you know, it's global warming, a little bit of fall as well. My best friend Rachel lived out there for like a couple years and she she did get to experience it like in a high rise, like seeing the hurricanes come through. And I was like, that is terrifying. It is. But I mean, people on the East Coast are pretty used to hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And we all were like, California has earthquakes. Can you imagine that? I would be terrified to even go there. <laughs> Just the ground moving. <laughs> okay. People in Kansas are all like pretty cool with tornadoes. So it's just all relative, I think. In Washington, we're, I don't know, everything's pretty cool here. Rain. You know, rain, like, I guess. I mean, there, is a, there is a huge... You guys are just piss, pissing rain constantly. Yeah, there is a huge earthquake that's expected that will level Seattle. Yeah. But, you know, it could come at any moment. Yep. So we're pretty cool with it. This is where Gen X started. So we're pretty okay with this. So I live out on the California coast at the moment where springtime is fleeting and unreal in its beauty. So, of course, that's really wonderful. But for me, actually, I'm going to have to say that I prefer shooting in the fall and even the late fall. There is something about that particular quality of weak winter light that I just love so much. And I look forward to it coming around every year. I actually think that the shorter days and the lower angle of the sun are a wonderful time to get out and take pictures. I'm not surprised. You're you're not about which part? Well, just well, he's he's mm-hmm. resides in California, and he he of course spring is gorgeous and beautiful. It is windy True. if you're by the coast, but yeah, fall fall rocks, <laughs> fall kicks ass. Except for the whole like sun down at five p.m. bullshit because. All summer long, I'm so busy and I'm like productive and then I'm like, all right, it's time to go home. It's like nine o'clock. And then in the winter somehow at five o'clock, I'm like, it's t- is it? I think it's time for bed. <laughs> Hi, this is Indignant Desert Birds on the Instagram. I prefer shooting in the spring. Uh, from a technical standpoint, I prefer the longer days or the days that are getting longer rather than the days that are getting shorter in the fall. And then from a mindset perspective, despite the crush of end of academic year 
obligations and, and projects that have to get wound up that are uh, unrelated to photography. Um, I do like the uh, budding possibilities of summertime projects in the spring, and that by the time fall rolls around, I've got a tremendous amount of fatigue after all of the summer projects are winding up, and everything feels just more frantic and desperate to finish before winter comes on. Uh, printing is a completely other matter, but for actually taking photographs, spring is the choice for me. It's kind of like how you used to do it too, where it was like spring, summer, where you're shooting. So you have long days, you can you can photograph all day long, and then during the winter, you were mostly like developing. That, yeah, that was a lot of it. I don't do that too much anymore, I guess. But I mean, I'm looking back on on like several years ago, I would shoot in the spring, say from March or maybe even April through August, which would be the July trip. And I get home and then I wouldn't shoot maybe a few rolls, maybe a few like very, very short day trips in, in autumn. And then that was it. I had such travel fatigue and that's what it was from summer. And that's like the problems you want to have. Right. But I did, I would be on the road for a month and I'd get home and I was just like, I don't want to see a camera. I don't want to see a road. I just want to stay here and not do anything. I've pretty well conquered that. I think two years in a row now I've shot all the way through winter and two years in a row, I haven't done anything. Sorry. I haven't stopped shooting right after my trip. You know, maybe I'll take a few weeks off, but I still get out there and that's big for me. It, it does mean that I'm using a lot more film though. His cycle, I would say is fairly normal for humans and animals in general. Spring, we're working, we're starting to work, we're stockpiling our projects, we're doing our things in the summer. Fall, we're trying to scramble to get things done before yeah. winter comes. So it, it is a very like natural cycle of the year. Oh, it really is. Of the it year. really is. And I do, I do enjoy spring with a with the anticipation of the summer projects and the summer travels and like like really planning for it yeah. and then you know it's it's may already and i'm just like what the i know fuck? i try to convince eric to drive up to canada with me <laughs> a, a may tradition i found the sickest 1975 Winnebago Brave and it was like 70s wallpaper shag carpet oh you guys it was like just pristine time capsule okay <laughs> and sorry. it was in Canada and which presented a whole slew of problems yeah I was like so what we'll fly up we'll drive it down big deal does it drive <laughs> but I don't know we'll figure it figure out figure it out <laughs> I'm I'm for adventure, but maybe not maybe not all kinds of adventure. Jake at just to post Jake on Instagram. I'm a public school teacher and spring is so hectic. In fact my last photo I think was posted in mid February just because I have been so busy and I think I've only shot like half a roll since then. Um, so for me, fall is actually better to shoot because kids are coming back. Everybody's easing into uh, going back to school. And I just have more like personal time to be able to go out and shoot. Whereas in spring is testing season and it's just a utter chaos until the end, end of school. You can hear the fatigue in that <laughs> poor man's voice. 
<laughs> and I just want to say, Jake, thank you for your service. <laughs> you have the hardest and one of the most thankless jobs out there. And I completely 100% respect you for I, that. I used to live in a college town and everybody kind of kept to an academic schedule because it was a college town. You know, the summers were very dead and kind of lazy and then things really picked up in the fall, but in a fun way. And then by spring, we were all just like, oh my God, will summer please get here? I, I get it. It was interesting living that way. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I I would love to have a school schedule. I mean, we kind of do with the podcast. Well, that's what I was trying. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, we do. Was, we do have that with the podcast. Yeah. I've been trying to push that as, <laughs> as much as possible. I mean, we've literally based our schedule on esteemed universities such as Phoenix University. Yale. <laughs> Well, Yale, Yale is a little, yeah. It's about. with a J. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Jeff Pittman on Instagram. I have to say springtime shooting is fantastic in Southern California when everything's just coming alive. Uh, flowers, everything, nature, it looks wonderful. Um, hey, I've only recently discovered your podcast, and so I'm now doing double time and getting caught up on all the old episodes and I'm learning so much. So thank you for what you do. I really enjoy it. Take care. Bye. Oh, that yeah, one was sweet. It is. I usually, when people will say those things, I usually edit them out because it just Why? seems, well, it seems a little weird to like patting ourselves on the back, <laughs> but I think, I think today we kind of need that. I think so. Yeah. So Jeff, thank you so much. Don't go too fast, you know, because we're 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 on episode sixty-two of our main, so yeah, we'll be around. We'll be around for a little bit, but thank you. And <laughs> yeah. yes, uh, spring. So that that means there are three springs and two falls so far. Springs in the lead. So let's see where we are with the next one. Hey guys, Ralph Brandy. There is no cat everywhere. Um, fall, definitely fall. So September is local summer on the Jersey Shore. All the Bennies and Shoebies have gone home. You can get into the restaurants. Everything's still open. It's the best month of the year. And as fall progresses and things start to get cooler, you see things start to slow down and, and things on the boardwalk start to start to close. And every week you go down and more, more stuff is closed, leading to the heat death of the universe. And that's what my photography is about. So that's the perfect time for me to shoot is fall and winter. So, definitely fall. I knew I could rely on Ralph for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember growing up going to Jersey and Maryland in the summers as a kid, and that's when you went to the beach. You know, we were tourists. But as an adult, as a young adult, you know, like just turning 18, 19, realizing that, oh, no, fall is the best time to go to the beach. It's, it just makes sense. Things are, are closing, like you said. And there's just a lack of, of the throngs of, of a certain kind of people there. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. It's insane yeah. at the beach. I can't. I take the summers usually off unless it's I'm somewhere far away. I do not like sitting in the sand with thousands of people. It's just, I'm just not into it. Also, I am kind of paranoid. So I see these kids like swimming into <laughs> riptides and stuff. And I'm always like, like paranoid and watching out for everybody, even though that's not even my job. It, I still feel like it's everybody's job. So, uh, 
it gets wild and crazy and there's fights and drunk people and people are jumping off the pier and people are drowning. It's, and people are trashing the place. And that's the part that bothers me the most because the weekend will have, and, and it, it happens all year long, but definitely in the summer, like we'll have a volleyball tournament or something happening at the beach. And then Monday morning when everybody's going to work and I go to check the waves and walk down there with my surfboard, there's just trash everywhere, just piles of trash all over the place. And it's so sad. And so, yeah, fall, I got you. I'm the same. I live here. This is like my local spot. And my favorite time of the year is when everybody's in school and everybody's at work. (laughs) And it's still like 80 degrees outside and it's October. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, California. (laughs) So that is um, three for spring, three for fall. And we have one more for (gasps) a tiebreaker. It's a tiebreaker. Oh my gosh. And he knows what it is. I don't, which is not fair, but it's okay. It is okay. And this call made my fucking day. Hello, my name is Ellen Rumel. I would say I am more of a fan of spring photography. Um, the last couple of years, I was living in eastern Washington, and I'm a big fan of taking pictures of really colorful things. And <laughs> eastern Washington does not have a very colorful landscape, but in the spring, it's incredible because you basically just get transported into like that Windows 95 desktop where it's got the green rolling hills and the Palouse and all of the wildflowers. Uh, Palouse Falls straight up looks like Iceland. It's crazy. Uh, But yeah, definitely spring in Washington overall is incredible, but eastern Washington in the spring is very special. I just found the female version of Eric. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I don't even have to talk about eastern Washington at this point. (laughs) Amazing. That is so rad. And I have seen some of your just recent trips. Yeah. Uh, You've been photographing a lot just on your stories to show how green and beautiful it's been. It's so amazing. Oh, it was so wonderfully green this past weekend when it was raining there. And I don't know, it it was, I don't, I don't think I ever had like a rainy day there before. And I really, really enjoyed it. And so to hear her, her calling in and kind of like, yeah, Hey, Eastern Washington in the spring is really green, which I, I knew. And the Palouse is a place where I don't get to too, too often, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, okay, what it looks like is, you know that in, in Northern California, when the golden fields turn green for like three days? Yep. Literally just three days. Yeah. That's the Palouse for about four or five months. Oh, that's like, amazing. Yeah, maybe a little less, maybe three months, but wonderful. And then it's, it's just so... golden wheat. Yeah, it's so pretty. We have a lot of those. Yeah. I remember as a kid, you know, that I'd always feel sad for the cows. Okay. (laughs) Like, why are they eating the dry stuff? Like, don't they eat, like, green grass? I don't know. You know, California kid, whatever. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, oh. Cows aren't picky. (laughs) So it looks like spring one. It looks like spring one by a nose, by a spring nose. Or a heel. By a, a sprig. Heel. By a sprig. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I like that. Okay. I like that. A little sprig of sage at the end. Exactly. Beautiful green. Oh, and the sage when it rains. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, nothing <sighs> smells as, as wonderful as that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. All, all you folks that called in. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, the for new people in. for calling. Thank you so much for 
for listening and for calling in. And yes, we love yeah. it. And we will wax on and on, wax on and wax off maybe about <laughs> spring or fall, depending in the next dev party. So listen there for our answers in one week. We've mentioned Alfred Stieglitz a couple of times during the Imaging Cunningham episodes, and we'll be mentioning him again later in this episode. We don't have a huge desire to do a deep dive on the cantankerous fellow, but he probably deserves a bit of a backstory. Yes. Well, the most important thing you have to know about Mr. Stieglitz is that in a time when photography was seen mostly as a way to document stuff, he saw it as art. And it was a huge fuck you if you didn't agree with him. He was really militant about it. I mean, he wasn't like throwing Molotov cocktails at classicists or anything like that, but he probably looked up how to make it just in case he went that route. Oh, goodness. So Stieglitz got his start in 1884, around the age of 20. His parents were wealthy through his father's hard work, of course, and he got an allowance. And Ooh. Not. I got an Let's, allowance as a kid. It was like four bucks a week. I know. I don't. I. I kind of feel bad saying it's an allowance because it just like seems wrong. Um, so twelve hundred dollars a month in eighteen eighty four, <laughs> which would be basically around thirty three thousand a month now. <laughs> kind of. Kind of excessive. Yes. Kind of excessive. But I will say. He's he's done some really amazing things. Let's let's keep going. Let's yeah. Let's with with this chunk of folding money, you know, just a, a little <laughs> bit of petty cash, Stieglitz bought himself an eight by ten camera and learned photography while traveling all over Europe. Three years later, he was writing, you know, his philosophy is art manifestos. Yes. Stieglitz's father purchased a photography studio for him in New York, likely so his son would be on a different continent from him. Yeah, it's very understandable. It's not quite understandable why his dad had the kick in the money for that. But, you know, we didn't do a deep dive on him. So maybe there is some juicy tidbits that we are missing. I think that they favored the other son. And he was an artist. So they favored the other son. Mm-hmm. What did the other son get then? If like the unfavored son <laughs> gets like a photo studio bought for him in New York and $33,000 a month, what, what did the other son get? I don't know, but I would take that role as oh the, my God. the second favorite, even the third. We tease Alfred Stieglitz a little bit. Not really teasing, but he actually did some good stuff here and there. For instance, with his photography studio, he paid his workers incredibly high salaries, which probably drove the studio out of business. He also became a sort of celebrity in the New York photography scene. He merged two existing photo clubs into the Camera Club and became their vice president after being offered and refusing the presidency. Humble guy. In July of 1897, he took over the Camera Club's newsletter and made it into a bound magazine called Camera Notes. I'm sure you guys probably have heard of it, and if you haven't, you should look into it. Over the next few years, the you know, we should do something on the Camera Club. I'm sorry. <laughs> the next few years. Sort of almost are. <laughs> we kind of, we're dabbling. Dabbling. But we, we need to talk about more of it. 
Okay, I think, sorry. I think so. But well, let's just continue what we're doing here before making plans <laughs> the, for the next episode. Sorry. Over the next few years, the club and the magazine became synonymous with Stieglitz. And so by 1900, which is a year that'd be very important later on in the episode, Stieglitz was in a battle for the camera club. His changes and the way he was essentially a dictator pissed off the older members. They tried various ways to stop him, but that just pissed Stieglitz off more. Later that year, he had a nervous breakdown, uh, which isn't funny, but it's also ironic, and recovered in his parents' summer home in upstate New York, apparently working on his Borscht Belt Tight 10. In 1902, he returned with a literal vengeance. He started the photo secession movement and started a new magazine called Camera Work. Stieglitz had not retreated from his photography is art position. This was a hill he would die upon forever and ever. Yeah, the first issue of camera work, which is what we'll be talking about briefly here, was released in December 1902. It lasted until 1917 and was the exclusive home of the pictorialists, a photographic style slash philosophy slash movement whose photos were generally soft focus portraits and landscapes. So if photography could only be art, it could only be this sort of art. A couple of years ago, Tashin Press released a book containing all of the photographs that appeared in camera work and sort of mostly in order. It contains photos taken by folks like Edward Steichen, Gertrude Casbear, who we'll hear a bit more about soon enough. Annie Brigman, who we'll eventually meet. Julia Margaret Cameron, we've talked about her before. I hope you guys remember. And a whole bunch more. They absolutely remember. How could they forget Julia Margaret Cameron? <laughs> so we have this book, this Taction um, yes. released book. And I've had it for, oh, I don't know, a few months now. And I just sent a copy to you. Yesterday or the day before, yes. Yes. What do you think? Now, this is not a type of photography that you're incredibly familiar with. So thoughts? Honestly, it's stunning. <laughs> I was a little sad that there wasn't the writing pieces that the Camera Works magazine had, because I think that was a huge part of it. Yeah. And a lot of people like wrote in the magazine. Kind of a bummer, but as far as the photographs, yeah, we, we've talked about this before, as far as like this whole movement and how it it's photography, but it it is so much like a painting. It's so beautiful. It's incredible work. And it's the complete opposite of a cabinet card or the portraits that people were doing for families, rich families. This is completely different. We often compare digital photography to film photography and kind of come up with a conclusion like, well, they're, they're kind of two different hobbies in a way. Same with, you know, taking like, one, like 35 photos, 35 millimeter photos and large format. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're the same thing in a lot of ways, but they're also kind of two different things. Yeah. And I think that's a comparison here. Whereas like, you know, doing studio work with like a cabinet card, which is pretty basic photography, pretty normal photography. Yeah. And this, which was going on at the same time, they're two different approaches to roughly the same thing. It's a book that is worth at least picking up to to just view the, the pictures. So are there any photographers in here that stand out to you? It was really neat to kind of look at some of Gertrude's pictures because we've I've heard of her work in several of the stuff that we've been kind of like researching over the, the past year. So 
kind of taking a look at what she's been doing uh, has been it's it's it is stunning. And I'm like, yeah, I couldn't even imagine how amazing it must have been to just be in the same circle as all these people. The crazy thing is Stieglitz is not even just because he was a very photography is art, but also modernist paintings and things too. Like he brought Picasso stuff over here and one sold the first time, like the first time like he brought Picasso's paintings over. It's kind of incredible. And so I, I actually started to deep dive and I wanted to learn more about him and mostly because I was bratty about it because he seems kind <laughs> of like an asshole. <laughs> he, yeah, well, what we heard from from Imogen Cunningham was that he was intimidating her, like purposely yeah. intimidating her. And, you know, from what, well, we had to talk about about this guy today and you were like, why are we talking about him? He's such an asshole. Yeah. And like, well, he did some important things. He did a lot of important things and it sucks that he was an asshole, but I think it's important that we do give credit where credit is deserved. And he, he did a lot for photography and he was passionate about it and he was a street photographer and there's just so much about his life that's so interesting. I mean, he was married to Georgia O'Keeffe. Like, what the hell? Like, yeah, this is who the fuck is married to Georgia O'Keeffe. Exactly. So, I I do really think it is nice to kind of have a little small, like, short segment about him. But I think at some point we'll probably have to maybe dive a little bit deeper on him. And I that's kind of my take. This book makes me excited to to really just like look into the inspiration of all these photographers over the last 150 years. These these are the works that that inspired the photographers in the 20 and 21st century. Well, these are the works that inspired Imogen Cunningham. Yeah. Like this is really like a like a prequel to the Imogen Cunningham piece cuz she saw this. She was when she was working at uh, Curtis's gallery, mm -hmm. she got copies of, I, I believe it was camera works. It may have been camera notes, but she got copies of, of one or the other. And she was like, oh, holy shit. Uh, you know, this is this is what I'm doing already. And here's, I can do, I can do more things with this. And that's produced some of her, her early work, which is my favorite of hers. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm like really cool. So I, I like Imogene Cunningham's early stuff. Oh gosh. So I would recommend people get this book. Yes, get the book. And then also I've been watching this old documentary on YouTube that someone recorded on there. It's it's the kind of you're at your school's end. Your teacher is kind of fed up and just has had it with you and decided it's going to be a movie. And it's probably going to be with a boring person that you don't really care about. And this is this is it. <laughs> Except that I'm actually interested in it now. The documentary has a real teacher wheeling in the VCR and yes. TV feel to it. Oh my God, it does. It <laughs> so does. It's on that cart. So we'll put a link to that. You can impress your film photography friends. You can, you know, mention like, oh, you know, your work is is so much like Alvin Langdon Coburn, you know, like it, <laughs> it just slay. <laughs> I know that Clarence White gets a lot of talk about him, and he should. Mm -hmm. uh, his work, I think out of any of them, stands out. Mm -hmm. And so if I had to pick a favorite, which I'm really, really bad at picking mm -hmm. favorites, but I would have to pick... I would have to pick Clarence White's and Vanya in all of her maturity is showing me a photo of a butt. And so we will <laughs> leave you with that. If for no other reasons to buy this book, it has butts in it. 
It's so. not. It's boobs. It's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, okay. It's such a beautiful picture. For nearly 20 years, from 2000 to 2018, Rick Barboza photographed fellow firefighters and wildfires in the American West, all while working the line. We've both been talking to him for years now, and... I love his work. You could tell in the pictures how gnar, like how intense it is. I'm just so excited that we get to have him on. So let's call him. Let's give him a call. Howdy. Hello. Hey. Hey, kids. Hey. So, Rick, thank you a bunch for joining us today. We really, um, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Well, we often ask people about their histories with photography and cameras and all of that, and we're more than welcome to get into that. But we would like to know a bit of your history with firefighting to begin. My firefighting started back in the year 2000. I was working for like a timber, you know, lumber company. I had a pretty good job and everything, but I decided to quit that job, pretty much dumped everything and, and started fighting fire that year. I worked for a private company. I don't know if most people know that, but there is like a private sector that helps with, you know, supplement whatever's going on out there. So help support. They do a lot of the same things that, you know, the federal and state crews do. I've pretty much did that for the better part of like from there to like 2018. 2018 was my last season because I, I got an injury. I just kind of pushed it, pushed it too far. I had a back injury. Otherwise, I'd, I'd still be be out there doing it with the rest of my uh, crazy old friends out there. <laughs> How did you incorporate photography into it? Because, I mean, it must be pretty brutal to carry a pack and be out there for several days or weeks at a time. Well, back then, you know, they, they used to encourage guys to take like a disposable camera or point shoot cameras out there with you so you can I, it would be like they'd give you this list of things you know they'd say bring all your all these socks and all this underwear and all this you know every all the essentials that you needed oh yeah and by the way bring bring a disposable camera because you're going to want to you know go home with a few shots of this stuff oh wow. um, that's so cool it is i did take some disposables back then and then i just got some point shoots because you know, that you know they were available out back then this is all before digital or anything really took off. And I used that for like a couple of seasons. There was in 2001, I ran into this guy who had like a Vivitar SLR. It was a pretty, pretty crappy camera. And he was having some trouble with it, with the shutter was getting stuck and everything. So I was like, hey, let me look at that. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was just a piece of crap. But I saw him later and he showed me the photos and I was just looking at the photos. I'm thinking, I could. I could do better, <laughs> better than that. Not to be cocky about it, but I was just like, you know, I was, all I could think it was like, oh, I would have you know, tried to do this with the shot or whatever. I used point and shoots up until like 2002. It was really handy. You know, it was real quick because you could just frame it and go. One of the one of the big problems when you're out there is it's everything is logistical out there. You know, you're you're trying to, you know, as as far as trying to be mobile and 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 be able to carry out your job and do everything you need to do without, you know, having to think or worry about anything else. Every Anything you carry with you has to be just fit in there and not be in the way as well. 
So point shoes make sense. The only problem is you're dealing with these all these changing conditions, not just with like fire and whatever, because you you're working from day into night, from morning, you know, early dark in the morning till dark at night. And you're you're going under canopy and you're in the desert and you're, you know, you're all you're all these different kinds of places and different conditions. Point shoes can only do so much. Around 2002, I uh, started working out of Eastern Oregon, and we, we started with these uh, these national Type 2 IA crew, these initial attack crews. Basically, they were kind of resourced out to different forests so they can send them out to anywhere in the country to wherever they're needed. Mm-hmm. And I was working out of Pendleton, and I went into like this trading post sort of place. It was like a little pawn shop or whatever, and I saw I saw this guy like. Nikon F. Oh, oh wow! Nice. I'm like, oh, so pretty. <laughs> yeah, this very one. It had a longer lens. It had a cheap Vivitar lens on it, and I was like, okay, that one's mine. Not just taking that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start doing this for real. I mean, I had used SLRs before. I learned on a Pentax K1000 when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Nice. Wow, nice. <laughs> like, Same here. You know, doesn't get any simpler than that. I hadn't really thought about. You know, using the SLR since like I don't know mid '90s when I used like you know just a regular, so it was like a Nikon N50 or something like that. It was just kind of, but it wasn't this. You know, this was like this thing felt like a brick. It felt like it belonged out there with me. On, of course, I had a strap to my side and it was heavy, mm-hmm. and I was digging lines with this thing. This thing, I figured out ways to deal with it, swing it around and hit me on the back of the head. You know, this this thing still work yeah you know this thing did not die at all along mm-hmm. with like i just used those and i use you know and, and a couple of years later i got like you know F, uh, like a fe nikon fe2 and you know that was a little lighter and easier to carry around with me out there how did you keep a balance between the two like obviously you were working all day long you would take breaks was it something that would stop you in your tracks to take a picture or was it during breaks like how did you take time and actually feel inspired with being exhausted and all that you know when i started doing it i just had you know a notebook and i was trying to trying to write all this stuff down mm-hmm. really writing was the main thing i really cared about that's really what i wanted to do i was pretty overwhelmed with the experience it was it was a lot of fun i couldn't believe my luck i was like young and dumb enough to to say that i would do it do it for free it was just it, it just there's so many things going on and happening throughout the day so i would at the end of the day i would you know, after finish eating and right before I bed down, I'd, I'd sit there cross-legged and, and I might sleeping bag or whatever and just try to write. But I would fa- end up falling asleep. <laughs> and I'd wake up cross-legged. I was kind of figured out that, you know, taking photos was just an easier way to do that. I can look at any photo that I've taken of anybody in any place and I can tell you quite a story. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that it's like, you know, photos became sort of a shorthand. You know, it's a big job. There's a lot of, ta- there's a big task ahead of you. You're trying to get it, you know, get it done. And you're usually trying to work against time. And, you know, you got all kinds of logistical and you know, strategic concerns or whatever. Plus you're also looking out for each other. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy, hectic environment. You know, with the point shoots, it was easy. Just pull it out, take the photo and go. Mm-hmm. The, the the trick became just like looking at those photos later and going like, this did not capture a, a thing. This this looks totally dark. The flash went off, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. This is, with, well, with the Nikon F, it was, it was, it was tough. I, I couldn't, 
I got a bunch of good shots, but it, it it was it was so bulky and 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 tough to carry around that yeah that it was quite a task. Plus, you know, it kept you know falling down and I kept hit me all over the place. So the <laughs> FE, when I got the FE two, all of that changed. It mm-hmm. was discreet. No one was paying attention. That was the other thing too. It's like when when I had this big you know Nikon you know. When I, every time I bring it up, guys would stop and look at it, pose or whatever. And I made a habit of telling them, like, if you stop and pose, I'm just going to walk away. Because so, <laughs> I wanted to capture them working. I wanted of to capture the, them in the environment and all the stuff. Mm-hmm. They, they got used to it. And after a while, they just ignored ignore me. And that was awesome. When I had the FE2, it was totally different. But, it, you know, it, even though it wasn't like a point and shoot, it felt like, I mean, I, I, could, I could operate it as quickly as a point and shoot. I had a good working light meter, unlike my Nikon F. And... I could just raise it up, take the photo, keep working. I I learned to, to like clip the, you know, the camera strapped to me. I mm-hmm. just clip carabiner it to like, you know, the, to my belt loop and oh, it wouldn't smart. go, it wouldn't go anywhere. Mm, oh, I didn't okay. even think of that. That's so smart. You know, of course, you know, you don't want to be spending too much time, you know, with, you know, with the camera to your face or whatever. So yeah. learning, learning how to be able to kind of just bring it up to your face, take the photo, put it back down and get back to work. Yeah. That became a, a, a skill that I didn't, didn't think I was going to have to develop out there, much less carrying other lenses and, and carrying film and all this stuff, you know, with, with all my other gear. You're, you're sacrificing space in your pack. You're not bringing tons of luggage, I'm assuming. No, you're bringing whatever food you've got and mostly a lot of water. You yeah. you carry like, you know, at least four to five liters of water in here. Or what has been your most dangerous experience with shooting and fire? Like, do you have shots that you look at and re- remember like, yeah, that was probably one of the scariest <laughs> moments? Yeah, if it was really dangerous. If it was like a really hairy situation, like the last thing I was thinking is about shooting a lot of times. I mean, it's a lot of the stuff is dangerous. I got photos of two, three hundred foot walls of flames right, yeah. you know, right in front of me. But I lit those, and I had, I was taking a break, and I was like, a good two hundred feet away where I can, you know, take the photo, or whatever. I did it for a long time, so understanding, you know, the fire behavior, understanding what the fire was doing and what it was going to do, you know, mm-hmm. just and would. All that stuff just kind of adds to whatever calculations you got to make to kind of deal with that stuff. Yeah, because you're not a staff photographer. You're not like, you're not a photojournalist here. No, that's not your job. Your job, your job is working the no, line. No, my job is is there with the crew. Like this is completely yeah. my my own experience within this environment. This this job and life that you know I had for all these years. I mean, I I try to shoot like like it. There are instances where like I actually have to use the camera to kind of calm myself. Like one time I got stuck on kind of on a cliff doing this kind of hike and I was crawled up this rock scree where I realized I wasn't going to be able to come back down the same rock scree. So I was stuck on this shelf trying to find a way down with a fobs, a forward observer who, who was trying to find a, a quicker way to this fire. We were going, we, I don't know, we went about three miles trying to find a way down. And we thought like, oh crap. But when I was up there on these rocks and I realized my mistake because I, I took the wrong route, I was like, oh shit, I've made a mistake here. I actually stopped. I'm like, all right, just settle down, calm down. Mm-hmm. And I pulled my camera. I t- took a photo from that spot. I'm like, well, maybe this is my last, last shot of this year. <laughs> I could see that being a little bit relaxing and kind of like grounding you a little bit. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, this isn't a question, but and I'm sure Eric's going to roll his eyes. But um, did you see Bigfoot, number one, and then also like oh, wild animals uh, when you're out there, like any cool experiences with animals? 
just some of the guys that I work with, they some of them look like Bigfoot and and uh <laughs> they're all a bunch of wild animals. So I've I've have had uh, you know a lot of bears run across. I've dealt with a lot of snakes and we were in Texas for the the Columbia Space Shuttle recovery, oh. picking up pieces oh. of the space shuttle when it disintegrated oh. back in 2003. Texas is full of all kinds of critters. Feral hogs are everywhere over there. Oh like we weren't worried about, I mean, I stepped over copperhead snakes. I stepped over all kinds of stuff. We got chased by moccasins. Oh. Um, there was, you know, longhorn bulls that, you know, you don't want to mess with. Do you shoot digital at all? There was a few years in the middle of it all where I, I did get a digital. I got a digital because my brother got tired of scanning my negatives and photos and stuff for me. And he was, wow. he was bugging me. He's like, why don't you go to digital? And I was like, I don't need digital. I'm a fly fisherman, not a commercial fisherman. I don't need to. Like, I, you know, I had all kinds of stupid analogies for like why I didn't you know want to want to do that. It had its uses out there, you know, out, out on, on fires anyway, where I could, uh, you know, switch ISOs. You know, you got, mm-hmm. you're dealing with such a constant change of lighting conditions. I don't know how many how many shots that I've missed because I had, you know, a 200 speed roll of film. And it's like here, it's really dark and beautiful, but I can't really do anything about it. I only have one camera and maybe two lenses at the most. Mm-hmm. Plus, I only had, would only have like five rolls of film, six rolls of film per you know, week or two, whatever. Um, digital, you have to think of batteries. And but that's the problem with the digital is that you have to deal with batteries and you have to deal with media and stuff. You also got menus and stuff. When I finally went back to doing just shooting film, it was the best fucking thing in the world because I wasn't looking down at the camera. I wasn't looking at a menu or whatever. It wasn't mm-hmm. with a film camera. You're just metering, shoot it, and then you get back to work. So what kind of photography are you working on now? Mostly the dark room. Like, you know, the, okay. you know, the, 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 the problem that I had, I didn't say it was a problem. The, the, the thing about how I, I used to shoot was almost completely reactive, right? There was so much stuff yeah. coming at you. It's one of the, the best things about being out there is like, you got great portraits because you got, you got, you're working on a hand crew with 19 other guys who are mm-hmm. all different personalities. So, I mean, just take your pick. You know, yeah. from the most annoying guy to your best friends, like they're all characters yeah. and it doesn't really yeah. matter. And, and when at the end of the day, you know, you're everybody's filthy, everybody's tired, whatever. But you all finished it out and did it together. No one got hurt and all this stuff. And there's landscape and there's action. There's there's, you know, airplanes and helicopters, like, you know, it's a constant, like almost like a battle scene that no mm-hmm. one's trying to kill you. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Now that I don't have those things, I guess I'm just stuck with everybody else trying to find interesting, interesting things and try to take photos <laughs> of. You know, I mean, for the most part, I'm I, I'm focusing on the stuff that I either passed on or just ignored for years. Dark room, yeah. just developing. Obviously, you know, I'm, I've bought your kits and stuff, but all this stuff that I kind of felt like I didn't have the time to do before. I used to just take the photos and then on to the next one, on to the next one. You know, that's like all I cared about was just go, 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 go. You know, it's more of a photo, photojournalist kind of mindset. Now I get to kind of look through it and look at these photos and see like, what the hell did I just do? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and be able to kind of decide like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. This is a good shot or whatever. You know, it's funny that the, 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 my standard as to like what, what's either a good shot or not a good shot, that's totally changed. Everything's kind of changed, you know, about how I think and feel about 
photography in general. I work like a regular, like a factory job. Nothing real exciting. It allows me to pay the bills and take care of my mom, which I'm trying to do. Yeah, I don't shoot as much. When I do, it's kind of like definitely more of a planned thing. I'm definitely uh, thinking more along the lines of how I take all these tons of negative stuff that I have and, you know, move forward with all these things. Trying to make something with all this. I still want to travel. I still I still got I got friends all across the state and in different places telling me, you know, inviting me to come out and shoot different places. Uh, My goal is just to kind of get healthy and get back to it. Yeah, you have almost 20 year body of work that you have to somehow compile and and figure out what you want to do with, even if it's just to organize it and have it set aside until you're ready to do something else with it or print some of it. Or it's like, what do you do when you finish an era and you move on to the next? I can I can remember specific times when I was there were completely just thinking like that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. And listening to you guys talking about developing and just thinking like, yeah, developing. Yeah. What, why not? What, what, what am I doing? Like, well, uh, where can people find your work? Uh, right now I'll just have it on, on Instagram. I think you guys told people some of the links on it. It's just the, the mountain money one is where I keep all the, the fire stuff and it's mountain money, one word, but it's all spelled with zero, with zeros instead of, Oh, the, the Rick Barbosa one is just mostly like, uh, it's mostly the film stuff. That's pretty much become my dedicated film past and future, you know, present and future stuff that that I got going. Okay, you'll have we'll have links to those in the show notes, of course. Thank you. Oh my gosh, for having like letting us talk with you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I'll just be traveling. You guys know what? I'll be able to get a hold of me again. That'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for for joining yeah, us. Thank today. you. Thank you, guys. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. One of our favorite things about history is connections. When people and events connect to other people and events that we've already talked about, it makes the enormous world of the past a little smaller and a little easier to understand. Today, we're going to connect slivers of several of our past stories, all while telling you a new one. Francis Benjamin Johnston had been on our radar for quite some time. When a friend of the show, Jaya Bott, sent Eric a 1966 edition of her Hampton album, it sent us on a sleuthy photographic caper with twists and turns and taught us once more that sexual and racial politics in America are incredibly nuanced and complex. And with that, let's learn a bit about Frances Benjamin Johnston and her Hampton album. Death often struck families in the mid-1800s. Having a child was a risk that even the most wealthy families might not escape. Francis was an only child of a mother who gave birth to four children. All but Francis died before the age of two. There was a daughter before Francis and a son and a daughter after, none of whom lived longer than a year or two. The brother died before he can even be named. Frances's parents, though living in Grafton, West Virginia, were connected. Before she was 10, the family moved to Washington, D.C. and mixed freely with social elites. Her father worked on the Treasury Department, and her mother was a journalist and feminist who penned scathing takedowns of male politicians. The family was wealthy enough 
to place Frances in a boarding school and could even allow her to study art in Paris. There, she was heavily influenced by the classics. Among young women of her generation, she was highly privileged, taking courses in astronomy and geography, chemistry, and philosophy. By the age of 21, Frances had returned to the United States. She became a free spirit art teacher and made illustrations for various magazines. By the end of the 1880s, she took up an interest in photography. Now, due to her family's connections, she received her first camera from George Eastman and was trained in the darkroom by Thomas Smiley of the Smithsonian. Drawing on her connections once again, she was given a job by the Eastman Company to act as a sort of agent, basically as customer support, seeing to the development of film and to the repair of broken cameras. On the side, she followed her mother's footsteps, becoming a free agent, selling her articles and photographs to various magazines, the most prominent being the Demarest Family Magazine, a pro-feminist monthly. Frances's contributions, like her article about Mammoth Cave, mostly concerned travel. As a side gig to her side gig, she took whatever photography job floated her way, usually made possible by her Washington connections. The Columbia Expedition of 1893, also known as the Chicago World's Fair, found Frances in a bit of a bind. She had teamed up with Charles Dudley Arnold, the chief photographer of the fair. During much of the fair, Arnold limited photography to such an extent that really only his camera could capture it. That pissed off Alfred Stieglitz. Though, to be fair, pretty much everything pissed off Alfred Stieglitz. But such a bitch he pitched that the higher-ups at the fair brought on William Henry Jackson, apparently Stieglitz's choice as head photographer. This whole thing did Francis no favors in Stieglitz's eye. But she did learn much of her Italian Renaissance style from the maligned Charles Dudley Arnold. In 1895, she was able to open up her own studio. Like many photographers of the time, she had living quarters attached. God, what a dream. I'm sorry. I just have to, like, think when I think of <laughs> what I want. Yeah, I would really. love that. <laughs> she made the place warm and inviting. There was a 12 by 14 skylight, and the place would be filled with natural light in the daytime. By night, she would roll up the rugs, drag the furniture to the side, and throw grand parties. Over the next few years, Frances focused mostly on portraits. Though there was a movement towards soft focus impressionistic styles, Frances maintained her traditional classical form. Her subjects were shown as dignified. There was a strange perfection to her work. Around the opening of her studio, she became more involved in the photography scene as a whole. She was the first woman admitted into the Capitol Camera Club and was appointed to be part of the jury of the Philadelphia Photographic Society expedition, along with Gertrude Kasbier. Her style caught the eye of Alfred Stieglitz, the co-founder of the photo secession movement. Stieglitz found her work to be awful. He fucking hated it. <laughs> but oddly enough, he published a few of her photos in camera, not works, camera notes. He was opposed yes. to her being a juror and called her work posed tableau, which he considered a great insult. Posed tableau or not, Francis was no prude. Allow us to indulge in a quick aside. Among Washington's wealthy ruling class, there was a young woman named Alice Berry. She was a bit of a wild one, even being arrested at a dogfight. In the winter of 1898, she called upon Frances to photograph her in the nude. After these photos were developed, Frances handed them off to Alice, 
who immediately passed them around to all of her girlfriends. The photos became the talk of the ladies of the social scene, and soon the men, all prim and proper, figured out a way to gain a glimpse. Alice's father found out and nearly lost his mind. Though Alice was an adult, she was from a respectable family. Her father sued Francis for libel. Francis countered that the photos depicted the beauty of his daughter, and it would only be libel if she were ugly. He basically agreed and sued her for defamation. The lawsuit apparently went nowhere, and everyone eventually recovered. Yeah, pretty much. But returning to our story, even through the nudes of Miss Barry, Francis's reputation was growing. She was hired to photograph the USS Olympia and her sailors in 1899. She captured the ship's majesty and the humanity of the crew, and in return, they loved her. Here was a woman not afraid to drink with them, to live their lives for a time. The photos showed how at ease they were with her, and even better, they were developed and printed in the ship's torpedo chamber, as there was no dark room aboard. We now arrive at our true subject, Francis Benjamin Johnson's Hampton album. And for this, we must return to the 1900 Paris Expo. Francis had two contributions at the Expo. The first, she created an exhibit of over 150 photos by 30 women photographers. Stieglitz was against this, by the way, not because they were women, but because the fair refused to classify photography as a fine art. They categorized it as part of the science. Despite Stieglitz, the show toured to Russia and then back to Paris, though never found a gallery in the United States, possibly because of Stieglitz's influence. Anyway, for her second contribution to the expo, we must return to the exhibit of the American Negroes at the Palace of Social Economy, put together by W.B. Du Bois. Now, we talked about this in episode 60, just two episodes ago, so you should remember it. And here is where the Hampton album was displayed. But we're getting ahead of ourselves in numerous ways, as usual. Francis photographed the Hampton Normal and Agriculture Institute in December of 1899. The spring prior, she photographed a number of Washington, D.C. white public schools. Over the course of six weeks, she took over 700 8x10 plates of school children in class and at play. The photos were used to illustrate a series of books promoting progressive education. It was partially due to her Washington school photos that she was hired by the Hampton Institute to photograph the buildings and students. Now, the Hampton Institute was founded by General Samuel Chapton Armstrong, a white Civil War officer who led the 8th United States Color Infantry Regiment. Following the war in 1868, he wanted to provide a school where formerly enslaved people could get an education. Like much in our history, things weren't exactly cut and dry. Hampton was a trade school focusing on such subjects as nursing, farming, and carpentry. It also practiced the progressive education ideals in history and geography. Even the arts were represented in the form of drawing and photography. Like most boarding schools at the time, there was a strict focus upon discipline, social hygiene, and Christianity. Many black schools like Hampton were cropping up at this time, but Hampton had something most others didn't. It was also an Indian school. Now, Indian schools in the United States and Canada are often seen as a brutal part of the Western genocide against the indigenous tribes of North America. 
and Hampton was that, to be sure, though in a more refined and subtle way, especially compared to like the Catholic-run schools in Canada and the other schools like Carlisle in Pennsylvania. By the time Francis visited the school, Hampton was embroiled in a debate taking place within the Black community. On one side was Hampton alum Booker T. Washington, who favored the Hamptons method. On the other hand was W.E.B. Du Bois, who saw the Hampton method as too limited. He argued that Hampton practically accepts the alleged inferiority of Negro races. As the school didn't touch upon the idea of civic equality or the right to vote, Du Bois would eventually win out. That would take decades. Despite the debate, by 1899, Hampton was using Du Bois' textbook, The Philadelphia Negro, and Booker T. Washington's The Future of the American Negro, two books that would be deemed as too radical even by today's standards, especially in regards to the racist laws recently passed in both Georgia and Florida. And despite their progressive education, the students were segregated in most aspects of life. Though in the classroom, male and female students, both Black and Indian, shared the same space. They were assigned very separate living quarters, with the Native American students living in a dormitory named the Wigwam. The teachers, on the other hand, were almost all white. This, despite Hampton being what was known then as a normal school, a teacher's school. But then, racial ideas at the time were much more complex than we remember. In the eyes of most of American society, Native Americans were capable of progress and thus encouraged to take up farming. Despite that, Native Americans were almost always depicted in their traditional and highly generic Wild West roles. They were glorified as an ideal and seen as racially superior to Black people. Meanwhile, Black students were seen as more easily assimilated into white society than the Indians, albeit as a servant or laborer. Native Americans were seen as historically more noble than the enslaved Blacks. In other words, whites saw Indians as more white than Black. And it was into this weird amalgamation of tradition and culture that entered Francis Benjamin Johnson. She was hired by the school's headmaster, Reverend Hollis Burke Frizzell, likely for a number of reasons. First, she was not, like many people of the time, overtly racist. She would photograph white and black people in identical ways. At the time, many photographed black people as racial caricatures or to exploit them for some political end, Native Americans as well. Second, she was just a damn good photographer. And that was precisely what was needed. Hampton planned to use these photos as part of their fundraising. So it just made sense to hire a good photographer. But in other ways, likely unseen by Reverend Frizzell, Francis was a good choice, even with all the societal constraints of the late Victorian era against her. She had been able to succeed as a professional photographer. She did this through connection, to be sure, but she also surrounded herself with other independent women. On top of that was her empathy. Frances was keen to throw off social convention. While she identified as a woman and was very likely a lesbian, she often played with gender stereotypes in her own self-portraits, posing in a man in at least two of her better-known photos. In one, she bore a mustache while posed next to a bicycle, and in another, she smoked a cigarette and held a beer stein while exposing her petticoats. Frances Benjamin Johnston spent a month and a half at Hampton Institution during December and January of 1899 and 1900. She was accompanied by her mother, who worked as her assistant. Across six weeks, she exposed 150 8x10 plates and made at least three prints of each. 
and and a set of duplicate negatives. In addition to her work, she also oversaw the Hampton Camera Club in the darkroom and had a show of her own work for the entire school. She also displayed the work of Stieglitz, Gertrude Casimir, and others. During the major shooting days, Hampton canceled classes so that Francis would have full control of the setting, especially in the classroom. As the student-run magazine The Southern Workman wrote at the time, The month of December was unusual for the constant charm and beauty of its warm golden days, Indian summer having lingered considerably beyond its usual limits. This fine weather was exceedingly favorable for the making of photographs, to which everything else in the school's program was subservient for the time being. Alfred Stieglitz's decade-old critique of Johnston's pose tableau was on full display. While the Finnish photos bear some resemblance of catching students in the act of learning, they are absolutely 100% clearly staged. Each student frozen for the entire exposure. There is no blur, no motion, just deliberate balance and order. We'll have a bunch of photos on, uh, I guess, our website and in the show notes if your podcast reader can read those. But if you look at those photos, they are, uh, they're kind of divided into a few different categories, which we will get into. But the ones we want to talk about right now, um, there's a one of the students pouring milk into jugs and it's such a weird thing to freeze in time because you can't freeze pouring. So nothing's actually being poured. They're just miming the pouring of milk. Is that right? Basically. It's very like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Oompa Loompas. You know what was weird is I thought that myself when I saw yeah. that. And I don't yeah, know what, what it is. Like. I, can't, I can't tell you what's Oompa Loompa like about them. And it's sort of maybe problematic to even say that. But there's something... It's the uniform, I think. It's the uniform, and also it's so how staged it is, and that's so mm. obviously staged. And, and another one, there's, what, six students, I guess, repairing stairs? That's one of the more famous mm -hmm. photos from it. It was on the cover of the 1966 edition of the Hampton album that Jaya Bot gave me. If you're a homeowner and you hired someone to do your stairs, there's no way you're going to have six people show up to do your stairs and but these guys were definitely getting it done on that day for sure. Well, they were definitely doing something. I mean, there's there's one kid putting in the what are they, what are they called the rungs? Yes. Or the the posts oh, no, or whatever. He's, no, he's measuring right now to make a hole for it. Okay, that's what it and looks like. And there's another kid like hammering a nail into a wall for yep. some reason. Yeah, and another like, one maybe drilling into the <laughs> stairs. It's hard to tell. I know. Like, what are you doing? Whatever's happening here shouldn't have been happening here, and unfortunately, it wasn't happening here. It's all staged. And so you picked out another picture. I did. It's fucking weird. <laughs> it's weird, and I I've never seen this before. It's yeah. very different from most of her other work in the in the album. And it's, in some of the pictures, it's not 100% known if she took them or not because the Hampton Camera Club did take a couple of the pictures. Oh, okay, gotcha. And it's possible this is one of them, but describe what we're looking at here. Well, basically it looks like some kind of drill and it's a hundred children. Yeah, young children. Young, like very young age, all standing at attention. And there's this one kid in the front with a big giant American flag. I see maybe two or three um, adults in the back, but it is just, I don't know. When I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is stunning. Well, they're saluting it using like a Sieg Heil salute. <laughs> 
I guess I didn't really notice that. <laughs> okay, that's what I know. I, I looked I mean, at I it. I didn't really like see it that way, but okay, now well, no, that that's, I look that's... up, look at it now, I'm like feel really bad that I said it was stunning. <laughs> I don't know if they're saluting it or pointing to the flag. They could be pointing to the flag, but their hands are. I mean, it looks like Sieg Heil, which obviously is predates Nazi Germany by you know several decades, so it has nothing to do with that whatsoever. But it is an odd photo where we bring something of the more modern times back into it. The devastation that we've been hearing over the past couple years about schools like this, it's, it is a hard photo to look at, but I just, I mean, these are people's children. Yeah. And we have to make sure that we remember that. Francis's work overall fell somewhere between journalism and art, and perhaps it was propaganda. The Hampton Institute and a little bit later W.E.B. Du Bois certainly used her photos as such. Though the work was commissioned and some critics insist that Johnston's mark or personality was lost in the photos, that Italian Renaissance style that she had, it shone through. They are perhaps more than anything else painterly, but exude a commercial sense. She was hired to sell the school to white donors. They are not sentimental or touching, but they're filled with a humanity, though probably an overly virtuous one. Such a thing as candid Victorian photos shot on location was not really a thing, apart from maybe the photojournalistic Civil War photos. But here was Francis doing just that. There was no way to escape the white gaze in Johnston's photos. She was white and she was gazing. But that's precisely what she was hired to do. To be more honest, that's precisely why she was hired. Though her subjects, Black and Indian students, live separate lives, drastically different from their white counterparts, Johnston's lens captured more similarities than differences. Both her Hampton photos and the photos she took the spring before of Washington school students were shot with the same camera, same lens, with her same eye and compositional style. The differences in the end are up to the viewer. Here were Black and Native American students learning just as the white students, the same books, the same courses, same mathematics. And yet, even viewers in 1900 understood that the students of color, though every bit as educated as the white students, were learning within drastically unequal possibilities. The white schools were preparing their students for modernity. The students of color were prepared for the labor force, for farming, and to be fair, teaching. While W.E.B. Du Bois wanted Black students to embrace their Blackness and even use it to facilitate their gains, the Hampton Institute, in an egalitarian way, was at once imagining a world without color, while preparing their students of color for what whites viewed as lower-class lives. But these differences, for the most part, could not be seen in the photographs. Some critics have even asserted that Johnston's Hampton Institute work is simply uninterpretable because of this. In other words, racial and class structures are mind-boggling complex, and photos capturing this are not to be taken or viewed within a vacuum. Johnston's visit was summarized by the school magazine, The Southern Workman. These pictures constitute a pretty complete pictorial representation of the various activities of the school, and the making of them was the chief event in the early part of December. The initial purpose of the photos that were soon to become the Hampton album was fundraising for the Hampton Institute. 
in that, they were a huge success. Over the next three years, the Institute's income through endowments increased by an order of magnitude. The photos were used in pamphlets set out to northern progressives and groups like the Quakers, and soon they were well known. How it wound up in W.E.B. Du Bois' Negro exhibit was almost preordained. Before even a single plate was exposed, Du Bois had called upon the Hampton Institute to submit something. They had decided then upon photographs. This was all explained in December 1899 issue of The School's Magazine. The exhibit which Hampton will make at the Paris Exposition is now well underway. It will consist wholly of photographs, space allowed being too limited for any further display. These will be made by Miss Frances B. Johnston, an artist of high rank in Washington, D.C., There will be about 150 of them, grouped under the leading subjects in the school's courses of study, and mounted upon the folding leaves of a large cabinet. When the exhibit opened in the summer of 1900, that's exactly what the album was. Not an album at all, but a wall-mounted display that could be flipped through. You might remember from our W.E.B. Du Bois episode that the American Negro exhibit won a Grand Prix award It was Francis's album that won specifically, though the exhibit as a whole won a slew of other awards. Though Du Bois had issues with the Hampton Institute's philosophy on the education of members of the Black community, he praised Johnston's photographs for depicting students studying, examining, and thinking of their own progress and prospects. And sure, it wasn't gushing praise, but he must have understood the importance of the photographs, especially to the white audience at the Paris Expo. Southern Workmen magazine explained the importance of the album to the school. It is part of the plan of the exhibit to contrast the new life among the Negroes and the Indians with the old and then show how Hampton has helped to produce the change. The value of such an exhibit lies not in showing to others, but in making clear to the school itself what it is doing. In other words, Johnson's photos and her album also existed to reassure the school that their philosophy and methods were working. The student magazine explained how the display was arranged to show the contrast between the old way of life with the new. That is how the album was arranged as well. For the technical folks who eat this kind of stuff up, we're going to describe the album in detail. (laughs) Bounded leather, the Hampton album contained 159 platinum prints on 155 sheets of off-white and inexpensive 10 by 14 paper. Most of the prints were contact prints made from the original 8 by 10 glass plate negatives. A few which bled off the edge of the paper were contact prints made with 11 by 14 plates. While most of the photos were Johnston's, around a dozen were stock photos of prints of school staff. Each page is divided by a thin transparent sheet with a very short caption handwritten upon it. When viewed, the print can be seen through the sheet and the caption appears below the print. Frances herself did not provide the captions, though they might have been derived a bit from the notes she made at the time. As we said, the album was originally unbound. Some time after the Paris Expo, the Hampton Bookbinding Workshop bound them together in a single volume, likely using the same prints that were on display. The album itself begins with several pages of staff photographs and some shots of the campus. Shortly after, its real work starts. Here is where the juxtaposition photos are placed. These are essentially before and after photos. For example, one spread shows a Sioux woman with a child. She is wrapped in a blanket and looking tired. It is labeled without education. On the opposite page, entitled with education, is a photo of an Indian graduate of Hampton. 
Kate H. McCaw and family. They are all smiling. There are a number of such portraits showing Native Americans upon their arrival at Hampton and those who are graduating, contrasting traditional dress and demeanor with that of -of turn-of-the-century garments and a more educated look. The album does the same for farms, showing Black-owned barns mostly staged on one side with Hampton's sturdy, well-constructed farm buildings on the other. The same is done with living quarters, an old-time cabin versus a Hampton graduate house. The album juxtaposes old wells with new wells, old kitchens with new, old plows with then-modern implements. The point is driven home again and again. Hampton provided an education to improve all conditions of the laboring class of Native Americans and Blacks. The bulk of the album, however, are the shots taken in classrooms and on the grounds of the campus. Through Johnston's use of Poe's tableau, they depicted learning and teaching, working and artistry. The classes are all mixed, usually with an equal representation of male and female, as well as Black and Native American. Even the photos of the football team are made up of Black and Indian, though it was likely segregated at the time. Gender roles were obviously on display. It was 1900 after all. The girls of both races are shown in sewing classes and gymnastics, while boys, both Black and Indian, were taught tailoring and woodworking. The album also depicts agriculture classes in both the classroom and literally in the field. It's surprising, at least to modern eyes, how both male and female students participated in both the agricultural chemistry classes, as well as the tilling and planting demonstrations in the field. It cannot be stressed enough how posed these photos are. They must be seen to be understood. But since this is an audio format, envision a staged Italian Renaissance painting populated by students dressed in 1900s fashion. They appear to have been captured in mid-action, but also so clearly stopped in time. Not by the shutter, these were long exposures, but by the photographer directing the subjects to freeze for 10 or 15 seconds while each photo was taken. There is an uncanny valley feel to them. It's like nothing we've really seen before. With few exceptions, there's no movement at all, even when there should be with such long exposures. One of my favorites is in a shoemaking shop and there's students in like, in mid threading and mid hammering and they're just, they're caught. There's no motion in this. And it's so bizarre for the time. I like the light that comes through the windows. Oh, it's beautiful. And how everything is centered, you know, there's the the vanishing point is dead center of the photograph, which is really weird for a classroom photo. Johnston made several prints of each negative, and they were dispersed into various collections over the years. The Hampton album itself, however, had a more interesting life. It is not clear when the prints were bound by the Hampton students into the album, but due to a November 1900 copy of the Southern Workman being used to straighten the binding, it was likely in the winter of 1900-1901. Now, during World War II, a few decades later, an art collector named Lincoln Kirstein found the Hampton album in a Washington, D.C. bookstore. While it had the captions, and it seemed obvious that it came from the Hampton Institute, no photographer was credited. Kirstein took the album home and sat it on his shelf. When company would visit, he'd show it to those who were interested in 
1965, two decades after he bought the album in D.C., he was convinced by Monroe Wheeler, who ran the Museum of Modern Art's publication department, that he should let the museum display some of the prints. Now, keep in mind, the photographer was still unknown to them. Once the MoMA had it in their collection, the photography curator, Grace Mayer, traveled to Hampton Institute to figure it out. Her orders were to, as is a quote, find out anything about the photographer himself, what his background and working situation was, and what other work he might have done. It was believed that a man from the Hampton Institute was the photographer. A week later came the response. She had conclusive evidence that they were taken by a well-known Washington woman photographer, Frances B. Johnston. They were, it seems, familiar with her work. And finally, everything kind of just clicked. So in 1966, the MoMA published the Hampton album, a small paperback, and I think it was in hardbound as well, containing 44 prints rearranged and weirdly juxtaposed when some of them had new and different captions. Now, this is a book that friend of the show, Jayabot, sent to me, and the this is the one that started us on our journey. The museum itself also displayed 44 prints. The book and exhibit were received with mixed and conflicted reviews, with one writer explaining, they radiate such innocence and good hope that they make me want to cry. This was the height of the civil rights movement, and much of the musings about the exhibit reflects that. There's skepticism and eye-rolling over this now ill-founded hope. Even in the 1960s, the photos seemed dated and misguided. Because of the MoMA's highly selective and abridged presentation, historians and critics from the 60s, even through the recent years, based their opinions of Johnston's work on an incomplete picture. The 1966 book, with only 40-some photos, leaves the viewer with an opinion of Johnston's work that can be completely flipped around when viewing the entire collection of 155. That entire collection was eventually released by the Museum of Modern Art in 2019. Apart from a collection in the Library of Congress, which is incomplete, even though it was donated by Johnston herself, <laughs> this was the first time that all 155 photos were bound together since the Hampton album was found by Kirstein. The book, still in print, is absolutely essential and should be in your collection. After shooting the Hampton photos, Francis Benjamin Johnston was hired to photograph the Carlisle Indian School. Those photos are in stark contrast to her Hampton photos. They're dark and unhappy. And this isn't really the fault of the photographer, but of the school itself, which, to be fair, was in long decline. She was also invited by Booker T. Washington to photograph Tuskegee and was nearly lynched by the local whites for doing so. She returned to the school in 1906 to teach a darkroom course to the photography students. Later in the decade, she moved to New York and was soon joined by an old friend and photographer, Maddie Edwards Hewitt. They likely became a couple and went into business together. For eight years, they ran the Johnston Hewitt Studio, photographing mostly city landscapes and architecture. They split up for unknown reasons in 1917, with Johnston being furious enough to scratch out Hewitt's name from newspaper articles. She kept the love letters, though. Neither took another partner for the rest of their lives. Johnston continued with her architecture photography before turning her eye towards the history of the American South. In a way, she became a sort of proto-FSA photographer, traveling through the South extensively until the rationing during World War II brought it to an end. 
Her final days saw her retire in New Orleans. Her death in 1952 at the age of 83 was hardly noticed, even the obituaries got the most basic of details wrong. Her legacy, however, is completely, and perhaps unfairly, wrapped up in the Hampton album. It is only in the last couple of decades that her name is mentioned with the other prominent photographers as she regains the esteem and criticism she received in the late 1800s. Much about Frances Benjamin Johnston remains a mystery. From her intentions with the Hampton and Tuskegee photos to her love life, she left almost no clues. That was her business. What she did leave us to enjoy and experience were her photographs. And the Hampton album finally complete and available once again is an incredibly fitting way to begin our exploration of this peculiar photographer. Well, we normally would do a zine review here. We are fresh out of zines, fresh out of, let's put it this way, fresh out of film photography scenes. We've got lots of scenes. So we do not have a zine review, but we do have a plea. Now, we're not going to beg you for your zines, but if you have a zine, let us know and we'll buy it from you. Yeah, you don't have to give it to us free. We can totally no, pay not for at it. All. Yes, we want to pay for your zines. We want to support you. So if you have a zine or know somebody who has a zine, let us know. All the Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting books, our newspaper.com account for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. If you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and some extra nonsense, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three different levels of support with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more information. Vanya, we are wrapping things up here. What's your next week look like, film, photographically speaking? Well, I've been pre-soaking that HP5 for the past couple hours now. It's like, it's been maybe four hours now? I think it's about four hours, yeah, which yeah. is a little peek behind the curtain of what's going on here on All Through Alliance. Well, we take breaks. Come on. Yes. Yeah, it was, it, was, <laughs> it was brutal. It was This a episode one. was especially long, yeah. Uh, could you but tell? But do you have anything coming up this week or next? I don't know. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. You are filled up with schooling and... Things like I've been that. like desperately wanting to just get out of town. I just yeah. seem to not be able to. Like I'm too busy and it fucking sucks. I've never I I have purposely made my life a specific way so I could get into my car and get the fuck out of here if I need to. And I just can't. Like there's just no way I can do that right now. And it sucks. But I don't know. Maybe a little micro trip. Um I'm looking for like a I'm still looking for my 1970s slash 80s, like avocado green, yellow, or ugly brown General Electric refrigerator because the small, tiny mini fridge in here is too small for the amount of film I have. And I have leaked over into the main fridge and there, (laughs) there is a war in my house about it. I am taking precious space in, in, in the regular fridge and people are not happy about that. I could just buy a new fridge, but 
I well, yes, you could do that. Can't do that because I want like some funky looking, ugly <laughs> old fridge because it sounds so much better. I have to make things very difficult. Here's hoping that that happens for you. Thank you. You're welcome. What's your plans look like for this weekend besides editing? <laughs> editing is pretty much how I'm going to be spending the rest of my life. <laughs> but after that, I will rise from the grave and hopefully do some camping this weekend. Wow. It'd be my first camp because it's just been like fucking winter here forever. And it's May and it still has like winter temperatures. So I'm hoping I can get out and do some camping, but we shall see. Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter, supposedly. Also, you can check out our show notes at allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Um, sort of both on Instagram and speaking of Instagram make sure to hashtag your stuff hashtag all through lens podcast to be featured we do that two three maybe four times a week also you can find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher Apple Podcasts Google Play and wherever the hell else you find podcasts subscribe and leave us a review also we have a new playlist up on Spotify don't we not finally finally you can tell which songs are mine I'm not sure about that but go on the music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you, and see you next week at Dev Party. Oh, uh, Vanya. Yo? Do you think you'd like to go out and shoot, maybe? <laughs> Fuck yeah, I would. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Fucking cry. I can't do this. This is fucking awful. God damn, I can never get out of the fucking 1900s.